Well, last Sunday, as you know, if you're here, we began a study through the book of Ephesians. And what we did in that very first study is that we spent some time trying to lay out the context, trying to lay out the historical background so that we can better understand the book as a whole and so that we can better interpret it as we study through it together. What we identified last week is that the Apostle Paul, he is the author of this letter to the Ephesians, Um, We identified that he was writing to Christians in Ephesus, a real place, with real people. And we also established that there was an ongoing relationship between Paul and the Ephesian Christians at that time. A very special, close, intimate relationship that they had together. After all, we know that Paul had spent about three years in Ephesus. He preached the gospel. He established the church and he grounded the church within that time. Uh, We also identified last week where it is that Paul was writing from. He was writing not just in his study with a a flat white and a, a large range of Bible commentaries behind him, but instead he was writing in prison. He was writing under house arrest, guarded by Roman soldiers 24 seven, and that was happening in Rome. He was waiting for his uh, case to be heard by trial before the Caesar at that time. And so that's where he was writing from. And then we kind of divided the book. We had a look at the the, the broad outline of the book of Ephesians. There are six chapters altogether, as we know. And we see that it's it's divided quite equally right in the center there. Uh, Equally divided into two main sections. In the first half, verses, uh, chapters 1 to 3, we saw that the focus of Paul is on what we should know as Christians, whereas in the second half, chapters 4 to 6, it focuses on how we must live. The first half focuses, with, focuses on the root of our faith. Uh, the second half focuses on the fruit. In the first half, it focuses on the position of the believer, whereas the second half focuses on the practice of the believer. And so there's a definite order that we see here in the very first half, which we'll be looking at today and we'll be in for several months. The very first half is, is our position as a believer. It's all about what God has done. There's no directives in there as to what it is that we need to do. It's all about what Christ has done. And then following on from that, once we have that solid foundation of what Christ has done, then the directives begin from chapter 4 onwards, about 32 of them all together, where he lays out what is Christian responsibility in light of all that Christ has done. And so it's with that background in mind, today we come to the main body of this letter of Ephesians. And as we're going to see, Paul doesn't really waste any time. He doesn't waste any time in getting to the nitty gritty in com- communicating the wonderful, tremendous riches that we have in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the original language, verse 3 of chapter 1, right down to the end of verse 14, they are actually, in the original language, one long sentence. That's what it is in the original language. In one, it is one long literary unit that contains 202 words, and it uses 32 prepositional phrases. Now, can you imagine what a grammar teacher would think if you submitted something like that? A sentence of 202 words. What's your grammar teacher going to think about that? But you see, the reason that Paul wrote this, it wasn't to try to pass an English exam. That's not what he was thinking. But instead, in this first part of his letter, uh, Paul wants to illustrate illustrate the way in which God's plan for salvation, the way that his plan is absolutely complete. He wants to illustrate for us that God's plan for salvation is without any weak, or missing links within it. He wants to carefully carefully craft out the heartfelt expression to, to the praise of God in his extraordinary plan of salvation. He wants to communicate how God has imparted to us his, his abundant blessings to those who are found identified in Christ. He wants to express how this loving, gracious God has called a a people to himself and devising a way to free them from the enslavement of sin and to sovereignly preserve them for their heavenly inheritance. And what's more, Paul wants to demonstrate how our salvation, it encompasses the triune God. Our salvation, it encompasses 
the, the combined work of the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working together in order to accomplish that which God has purposed. And we can broadly outline verses 3 to 14. Okay, we're just looking at the, the broader outline here. We're only taking verses 3 to 6 this morning, but the broader outline, we can um, outline verses 3 to 14 in the following way. All focused around the Godhead's work, the, the triune God's work in our lives of, of salvation. Firstly, in verses 1 to 3, we see that we are purposed by the Father. That's the first thing. Then he moves on in, in verses 7 to 12, that we are purchased by the Son, and in case you're wondering, verses 13 and 14, there's another P word, and that Paul explains that we are preserved by the Holy Spirit. Purposed by the Father, purchased by the Son, preserved by the Holy Spirit. These, my friends, are tremendous truths for us to be thinking about. It is like God wants each one of us to know that, hey, listen up, believer. You were planned from the very beginning. You were purchased with a great price, and therefore you will be with me forever. That is the heart of God. That is what God, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants to communicate to God's people. Now, one of the primary reasons that Paul is communicating these astounding truths of salvation is so that we will attribute greater praise, greater glory to the triune God. And we see this. We see this in the way in which, which Paul finishes off each one of these little sections, if we could divide it up in this kind of way. He finishes each of them trying to draw attention to the greater praise, greater glory to the Godhead. For instance, we see explaining, after Paul explains what it means to be purposed by the Father, notice in your Bibles in verse 6 there, what does it say? It says in verse 6, he'd been purposed by the Father, then it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then he, after explaining what it means to be purchased by the Son, what, is, what does Paul do in verse 12? He concludes by saying, to the praise of his glory. And then finally, when he explains what it means to be preserved by the Holy Spirit, notice it there in verse 14 in your Bibles, he says, to the praise of his glory. In other words, what we are studying in verses 3 to 14, it should arouse something in us. It should arouse in us a, a greater desire to praise and to glorify God who chose us, who gave his life for us, and who is keeping us to the end. Now, in case you're wondering, this actually forms the outline of our study for today and the next couple of weeks. We're today's study, we're focusing on verses 3 uh, to 6, be purposed by the Father. Next week, we're looking at the next section, verses 7 to 12, being purchased by the Son. And then the Sunday after that, we're going to be focusing our attention thirdly on verses 13 to 14, being preserved by the Holy Spirit. This is the outline for today and for the weeks that follow. Today, verses 3 to 6, purposed by the Father. That's the theme. The whole thrust of the passage, verses 3 to 6, the whole thrust is to communicate to us as believers the role of God the Father in our salvation. Paul wants us to make it, Paul wants to make it very crystal clear for us that our salvation as Christians, it was not an afterthought, but it was something that was planned right from the very beginning, purposed by God right from the very beginning. And the doctrine that this passage teaches is what is known as the doctrine of election. We see this in the very first, firstly in verse 4 there, where if you notice it in your Bibles, it says that we were chosen by God the Father. And then if you go down to verse 5, he says that we were predestined. The doctrine of election, well, sometimes known as the doctrine of predestination, well, it could be defined in the following way. If it's a new concept, if it's a new idea to us, this is what the doctrine of election is by way of definition. I don't have it up on the screen. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on the basis of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of the good pleasure of his sovereign will. Election 
is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on the basis of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of the good pleasure of a sovereign will. This is the doctrine or the theology which undergirds the passage which we are looking at today. And so it's with this in mind, we know where we're going, we understand the broader thought of Paul. We'll now focus it to verses 3 to 6, and we can divide verses 3 to 6 this morning into four main parts. All focused around this idea of election, God purposing us, purposing us for salvation. What is the four parts for that we're going to look at today? Well, firstly, we're going to see in verse 3, the author of our election. Secondly, in verse 4, the timing of our election. Thirdly, verses 4 and 5, the purpose of our election. And finally, verses 5 and 6, the basis of our election. The author, the timing, the purpose, the basis. So let's give our attention now, looking at the very first one, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul, there it is, we've got the, the definition right there. How about that? Where we're going to be looking at, first of all, the author of our election. So notice if you give your attention there to verse 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so notice, notice the way that Paul begins this section of explaining God the Father's role in our salvation. Notice the way he begins this section of explaining God the Father's role in our election. He uses there, if you notice there in your Bibles, at the beginning of verse 3, he uses the word blessed. It means praised or to be praised. In other words, before getting into any details about our election, our predestination, the place where we must start is a heart of, of thanksgiving, it's a heart of gratitude, it's a heart of appreciation, it's a heart of praise. You see, Paul is not raising the doctrine of election to stir up an argument. But his purpose of raising this subject is to stir up thanksgiving, gratitude. For God the Father within our hearts. And in case you're wondering, this should always be the case. It should always be the case. The proper response to the doctrine of election should never be argumentation, but it should be adoration. The proper response to the doctrine of election should never be protest, but it should always be praise. If, if all the doctrine of election is to us is a theological point to debate with others, then guess what? We're really missing the point here. Because the, the whole point of the doctrine of election is to reassure us as believers that we are not an afterthought. That, that, that our salvation hasn't just come around by a mere accident, that we are not a mistake, that our entire existence and destiny are not unplanned. But instead, notice in verse 3 that Paul says that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has purposed us to be blessed. Notice what it says there in verse 3. It says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is what he's purposed for us. Be blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The, the, the truth of this reality, it, it should result in an increasing heart of thankfulness to who? Thankfulness and praise to the one to the author of our election, who is God the Father. Now, when Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, any guesses of what the, the Greek word every means? Every. That's what it means, literally, very specifically. In other words, there is nothing that God has for us as believers that has not already been given to us in Christ. What this means is that there is no special favor from God that we need to work towards or that we need to try to attain that has not yet already been given to us as believers. This means that we needn't worry about missing out on anything that God might have for us, any good thing, because in Christ we have been given it all. The author of our election has bestowed upon us as believers Grace upon grace upon grace. 
In Christ, there is no special blessing that has been left out. Now, of course, in case you're wondering exactly what those spiritual blessings are, well, the good news is that as we go through the book of Ephesians, especially the first three chapters, Paul is going to list them. Paul is going to articulate exactly what some of these tremendous blessings, spiritual blessings, actually are. And so be careful to note them. Be careful to go through, as we're going through the first three chapters of Ephesians, make sure that you're looking out for them. Where are they? Where are the blessings? Where is this spiritual richness that Christ has given to us, God has purposed for us, accomplished through Christ? Where, where are they? Note them down. Be looking for them to draw them out. But in the meantime, we move from firstly the, the author of our election in verse 3, who is God the Father, to next the timing of our election, which is found in verse 4. So if you could give your attention to verse 4, notice how Paul continues there. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Let's just stop there for a moment. What is Paul communicating here? What Paul wants to communicate here is that one of the spiritual blessings of the believer is that we have been chosen by the Father. We've been chosen. What Paul is saying here is that God the Father has chosen us as believers to be appointed for salvation, which is found in Christ alone. In other words, the reason that we are now saved is because God purposed for this to happen ahead of time. When we responded to the gospel through a repentant faith, well, guess what? It may have come as a surprise to you. It may have come as a surprise to your family and to your friends. But I can tell you one person who wasn't surprised, and that was God. Your salvation was not a surprise to God, simply because well before we responded positively to the gospel, God sovereignly, providentially purposed that this would be the case. Now, what this tells us about our salvation is that ultimately, we are not the initiator, but God is. Did you notice also in verse 4, the timing of when God chose us? What's the timing there in verse 4? Paul says that it happened before the foundation of the world. Before the universe as we know it was brought into existence, God chose. In other words, even before God created the heavens and the earth, before he created mankind, God already chose ahead of time those who he would specifically appoint for salvation. And what's interesting is that according to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it actually talks about Jesus being the lamb, of, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that from God's vantage point, even before he created the heavens and the earth, he saw the rebellion of mankind. He saw what would result from the fall. But at the same time, as he saw the rebellion of mankind, he also saw his plan for how he would redeem sinful mankind, and that was through Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And what this teaches us is that our salvation and the price for our salvation, it was something that was settled in the mind of God before time began, according to his sovereign purposes. And if you're still uncertain, if you're still uncertain about God the Father as the sovereign initiator of our salvation, we only need to cross-reference any number of passages of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, to actually see the same thing. John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. John speaks of Jesus by this way. He says, He came to his own. His own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. What was the basis? Well, he says, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A person who would respond positively to the gospel, who would receive the salvation that was made available to them, it is because they had been born of God in order for that to take place. The initiator was not man. The initiator 
was God. Then in John chapter 6, verses 36 to 40, he says, Jesus says, But I have said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will, who sent, uh, will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me, talking about specific people appointed for salvation, that they would lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at that last day. Well, that's quite a few words here. Let's make it a little bit specific, a bit more specific. Just a couple of verses down. John 6.44, where he says, Jesus comes out and just says it. You know, in case you didn't get it the first time around, listen to this. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Well, take John 15, verse 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. You see, this idea of God's sovereign election, this is not a foreign idea to our New Testaments. But we also have to understand that it's not a foreign idea to our Old Testaments either. One word, three words. Nation of Israel. You want to think about election in the, in the, in the Old Testament? Think of three words. Nation of Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explains this in more detail, how God elected Israel to be his special chosen nation even before Jacob or Esau had been born. And the same is true for us as Christians. We love God because he first loved us. We chose God because he first chose us. What the scriptures consistently teach about salvation through both the New Testament and Old Testament is that God is always the initiator and we are always the responders. Again, in terms of our salvation... The matter was settled in the mind of God even before the foundation of the world. That is the timing of our election. Well, moving on from the timing of our election in verse 4, we come next to the purpose of our election, verses 4 and 5. There is a purpose for why it is that God chose believers to be saved. Or put it in the form of the question, for what purpose did God the Father sovereignly choose Sovereignly elect, sovereignly predestine us in Christ for salvation. For what purpose? Well, Paul tells us, continuing partway through verse 4, if you give your attention to your Bibles partway through verse 4, he says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Let's just stop there for a moment. Based upon what Paul is telling us here in verses 4 and 5, we can summarize God's purposes in electing us for salvation using two words. We can summarize it in two words. If you're wondering, those two words both begin with the letter S. Two words for why Paul's telling us of why it is that God elected us. The first word is sanctification. The second word is sonship. Let's start with the first one. First reason for why the purpose for why God the Father elected us. Sanctification. This is what Paul means in verse 4 where he says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now what is this telling us? It's telling us that God's purpose in electing us for salvation is so that we would be set apart. God's purpose in electing us for salvation is that we'd be set apart from the world and that we'd be set apart to God. That's what is meant by the word holy there in verse 4. Set apart both in our position before God, but also set apart in terms of our practice before the world. 
You see, God has not only purposed for the believer to have a saved soul, but he's also purposed for us to have a changed life. It's part of the new covenant promise, Ezekiel 36, where God says that he'll take out our heart of stone, he'll replace it with a heart of flesh, that he'd put his spirit within us and would cause us to what? Cause us to walk according to his statutes. Cause us to walk according to his word. That is the new covenant promise of which we are involved in today. A changed heart that would result in a changed life. We use the word sanctification to describe the process of that changed life. Sanctification simply is the process. It describes the process by which a believer is empowered for right living by the Spirit of God to become more and more like Jesus Christ. It is something that happens post-conversion. A person receives a saved soul, and then the fruit of that, the evidence of that, is that of a changed life. This is God's purpose in salvation. This is one of the reasons why God chose, to, to, chose us for salvation. That both our, our standing and our conduct before God would be different than the rest of the unbelieving world. That's why we find in places such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would become more and more set apart unto him. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and verse 29, he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Do you see what he's saying there? God has chosen us for the purpose of being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, what this is telling us is that salvation is not just about obtaining a pass to get out of hell for free. It's not just about that. Those who talk about salvation as merely a saved soul, but who reject to talk about the changed life or the fruit of the changed life that will follow, they are simply missing God's point and God's purpose or one of his purposes in our salvation. If you say it's all about, hey, you get a path to get out of hell and that's the, that's the whole deal without talking about the whole picture, without talking about the Ezekiel 36 purpose of it, that, that God would change our hearts so that we would put his spirit in us so that we could walk according to his word. If we miss that bit out, well, we're only... We're only telling half the story. We're only telling part of the story, aren't we? And if we do that, it can be very misleading. If we do that, it can, be, it can result in a lot of false conversions. Those who will take the pass, great. Get out of hell for free card. But neglect the aspect which talks about the changed life. And so I think as we think about God's purpose for election, the first reason that... Paul gives to us here is our sanctification. That's the first reason, the first purpose that he gives us here for why it is that, that God has purposed us to be elected for salvation in the first place. But notice a second reason. First reason is what? Sanctification. Second S word is sonship. That's what he means in verse 5, if you notice it in your Bibles, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. What is this telling us? Well, it's telling us that God has not only chosen us for holy living, but God has also chosen us to be part of his family. That is what is meant by the word adoption in your Bibles there. The word adoption there, it describes a kind of relationship that God has purposed for his people to have with him. Now, according to both Roman and Greek law at that time, this word adoption was commonly used. Under Roman law, an adopted child acquired all of the legal rights of a, that a natural-born child would have, and at the same time, they were released from any control that the natural father or the natural parents may have once had over them. According to Roman law, the, the child who also, also received at that point the family name, the family name of the family who was adopting them, and they also... We're able to share the status of their new family as well. A while back, 
a little while back, I remember meeting a guy at the, a, the Malvern AMP show, and he talked with me a wee bit about how he had gone through the whole process of adoption, and he had adopted two young girls from Ethiopia. He had talked about the process, he talked about how much time it took, and how much cost and how much money there was involved um, to try to, to work through this entire process. But then he, he made it very clear that once that agreement was settled, once all the paperwork had been done, once we had reached the agreement, those girls were his own. They, were no, they no longer had the rights and the privileges of their birth parents, which, by the way, were basically nothing. There was nothing there. But instead... These girls were now entitled to all the rights and to all the privileges of his own family. Adoption now gave him the right to call those girls his daughters. These are my daughters, he said. And it gave those daughters, those girls, a right to be able to say, this is my father. This is the nature of adoption. And in a similar way, this is the idea that Paul is wanting for us to understand in terms of the believer's relationship with God. God has elected us so that he could bestow upon us as Christians the rights and the privileges of being part of his family, as being part of the family of God. And what this tells us is that one of the the purposes of God in choosing us is for close, intimate relationship. I mean, he could have chosen us to be a janitor. He could have chosen us to be the the caretaker, the servant, outside the home, outside the family. And hey, would anyone complain here? Would anyone complain to say, hey, you know what? I'm in here. I'm a janitor, but hey, at least I've got to heaven. I can never get into the, the king's home itself. I'm not part of the family, but hey, I'm in heaven. Who cares what I am? I've crossed over the line. Thank you, God. He could have chosen us to be a janitor and we would have been completely fine and happy with that. But instead, what what does the Bible tell us? It says that he's chosen to make us part of his family with all the rights, with all the privileges. That we can now look at God and say, that is my father. You cannot tell me in any other, that is my father. He has done the process. He's gone through the due diligence. He's paid the price. Everything that's required for me to become part of his family, he has done. He is my father. And at the same time, the Father can look upon us. He can look upon us as believers, part of his family, and say, these are my children. These are mine. I have gone to great lengths in order to accomplish these people being part of my family, and here they are. It's the way like John puts it in 1 John 3.1. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. You've got your little column there with the spiritual blessings. Better stick that one under there. Adoption. Sonship. Part of the family of God. And so sanctification, sonship. These are the two purposes that Paul gives to us in this passage for why it is that we were chosen by God the Father. It's not enough just to say we were chosen, great, but we need to ask the question for what purpose? That we would glorify him through a changed life that we would enjoy intimate relationship with him as part of his family. Well, moving on from the purpose of our election, verses 4 and 5, we come finally to the basis of our election, verses 5 to 6. We have already seen from Scripture that election is an undeniable reality. We've seen this from Scripture. I mean, it's right there. Anyone who tries to deny it, they're going to deny big portions of Scripture. It's undeniable. You cannot avoid it. It's kind of like what R.C. Sproul once said in his uh, teaching series that's called Chosen by God. He, he once said, you know, election is a doctrine which everyone believes. He says it, he makes that statement. And that's based upon him going right throughout church history, starting from the very early church fathers, Augustine and, and beyond, and then going up to the reformers, you know, 500 years ago with Luther and Calvin and, and Zwingli and then into the Puritans and then, and then talking to even the most conservative, solid biblical scholars today. Everyone, everyone believes this thing. Everyone, everyone believes this. To demonstrate that the doctrine of election is, has always believed by everyone, everyone who is on the right side of orthodoxy. 
Anyone who would deny election is, is on the wrong side of orthodoxy, wrong side of church history. Everyone through church history has always believed in election. But where there's sometimes disagreement <clears throat> is on what basis does God elect. So yeah, there is the, You can't deny predestination and election. You can't deny that it is in the scriptures, but where disagreement is, comes about is on what basis does God elect? On what basis does God choose some for salvation? And there are some who have come up with an idea, a bit of a theory. I say theory because I don't believe it has any scriptural, biblical warrant or evidence. Some people have come up with an, an idea, a theory, known as conditional election. What is conditional election? A conditional election is that God elects some individuals based upon, guess what, a condition. And that condition has to do with God's foreknowledge. His foreknowledge of how he knows that some people in the distant time, in the distant future, how he knows those people would respond to the gospel. In other words, according to the, the idea of conditional election, God looked down the, the corridor of time and he could see how each person would respond to the gospel. And if God could foresee that some people would respond positively to the gospel, well, it's on that basis he would choose them or elect them for salvation before the world was created. But... If God could foresee, look down the corridor of time, and if he could foresee that someone would reject the gospel, well then on that basis, God would not elect that person for salvation. And so when you kind of sum it up, according to the view of conditional election as the basis for why it is that God elected, well, <clears throat> the reason that God chose me is because I first chose God. When you boil it all down to it, that's what conditional election is about. God chose me on the basis of me choosing God. With the view of, of conditional election, the ultimate cause of salvation, it rests upon the shoulders of mankind. Because it is ultimately based upon how a person will respond to the gospel. Now, <clears throat> there are some major theological problems with the view of conditional election. I'm going to bullet point, I'm going to highlight the word bullet point, I'm going to bullet point five major issues with those who would say, who would hold to a conditional election view. I have a whole sermon just on these five points. In fact, I've got a whole series which pads it out even more if you want to listen to eight or nine hours of it. I'll give it to you if you, if you like. But five main theological problems with the idea of conditional election, that God chose me based upon a condition, and that condition being my response. Five theological problems. Firstly, this view is not consistent with the doctrine of God's decree. Some of you may not know what that is. I do have a sermon, a whole sermon that, just, that, that focuses on that. The doctrine of God's decree. That God has purposed all that would happen ahead of time, that God is completely sovereign over all things, and that nothing takes him by surprise. And so firstly, conditional election is not consistent with what the Bible teaches, a whole ocean of truth around the doctrine of God's decree. Secondly, Scripture talks about foreknowledge of people, not facts. And all the passages which talk about God foreseeing or foreknowing, it's not talking about how a person would respond, but instead it's foreseeing and looking ahead to the people themselves. Which is another reason, which gives it makes it a very, very big theological problem with those who hold to the, the view of conditional election. Scripture talks about the foreknowledge of people, not facts. Thirdly, Scripture never speaks about a person's faith as the reason that God chose them. Now, that should be very significant. That should be sobering. That should put anyone with a, that holds to a conditional view of election, it, could, it should cause a big gulp in their, in their throat when they hear that. Scripture never speaks of a person's faith being the reason that God chose them. That should kind of settle the case right there. A fourth reason for why it's a theological problem to hold the conditional election is that election based on something good in us, meaning our 
response of faith, well, that would be the beginning of salvation by merit. Do people who hold to a different view still think that there needs to be a response? Absolutely. But the reason that there is a response, the biblical reason that we respond to the gospel is because God has changed our heart and enabled us to do so. Not so with conditional election. It is some good, some, something mustered up in us, enough good to be able to, to respond in a positive kind of way. Election based on something good in us, our faith, would be the beginning of salvation by merit. And number five, the fifth reason, a major theological problem with the view of, uh, of conditional election is that this view does not take into consideration the inability of mankind to respond positively to the gospel. It doesn't take that into consideration. Not a single shred of evidence, biblical evidence, not a single verse interpreted in context will ever point to a person to point to a reality where a person would respond positively to the gospel without any influence from God. There's not a shred of biblical evidence, not a single verse that would take a look at the nature of fallen mankind and then say, somehow, when you look at all the verses in the New Testament, for instance, that would that talk about the condition, that would, talk, that, that would talk about how it describes the unregenerate person. You look at all those passages, there is nothing in Scripture, not a shred, not a, not a shred of evidence, not a single Scripture that would say that somehow an unregenerate person in their unregenerate state would somehow wake up one day and go, hey, I've got a good idea. I'm going to choose to put my faith in Christ and follow him as Lord for all of my life. There's not a shred of biblical evidence. And I still ask for people to please, if you hold to that, please come and show me. Come, show me the text. Show me the text of Scripture that says that. Not to get into an argument about it, but just to try to say, Scripture needs to be our guide when these things are concerned. Not our misunderstandings. Not, not our objections. Not, not our you know, human rationale when it comes to these sorts of things. Scripture alone must be our guide. And unless it can be proved scripturally, you know, um, with any of these things, contrary to what's just been said, well, then we have to kind of push this view to one side. So if the Bible doesn't teach the idea of election being conditional, the question still remains. On what basis does God choose some people to be saved? Well, guess what? There's no guesswork that's needed here. The Bible tells us. It tells us the basis of election because Paul explains it. Notice it there in verses 5 and 6. He says, picking up in partway verse 5, it's according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. What does it tell us? What does it tell us about the basis of our election? It tells us that the basis of our election is unconditional. It tells us that the, re the very reason for why God chose us, it had nothing to do with us, but it had everything to do with him. We know that our election can't be based on anything good that we have done or any merit that we have achieved. After all, we've seen in verse 4 already, this matter was settled before existence, was brought in, you know, before the universe was brought into existence. But instead, the reason that Paul gives for why God elected us it was because of the good purpose of his will to the praise of his glory. That our election would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why. And the purpose is only known to God. God has graciously allowed for us to receive eternal life. Now the question that sometimes is asked from this is a natural question. Why does God choose some and not others? Again, you know, I have whole sermons that could talk about this, whole series that could talk about this. And if you want to know a bit more, I can direct you to those audio teachings online and you can work through the process, understand what Scripture really teaches rather than the misunderstandings that people will throw at you or someone, something that someone says on YouTube or something like that. Work through the biblical process, Scripture alone being your guide on the matter. But even still... Why does God choose some and not others? Well, 
Paul tells us why he chooses some and not others. And that's simply because election is according to the good pleasure of God's sovereign will. That's why. Why does he choose some and not others? Because it's to the good pleasure of his sovereign will. That's what the text says. In other words, God is God. And because God is God, he can do whatever he wishes. Because God is God, God is answerable to no one. Who are we to come up and say, why would you do something like this, God? Paul's argument right throughout Romans chapter 9 is exactly that thing when talking about the subject of election. When talking about the subject of election, he says in Romans 9, he says, look, God is the potter and you are the clay. And then he asks the question, what right does the clay have to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? God is God and God can do what he wants. He is answerable to no person. And at this point, there becomes disagreement among some. Because on, there is immediate thought that kind of comes to mind. Some who immediately object to God's sovereign, unconditional election, they object to it by saying simply this. That doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair to me that God would choose some and not others. If God could save everyone but he chooses not to, then this must put God in the wrong, people will say. But what we need to understand is that this is the exact same argument that Paul deals with in Romans chapter 9. The exact same one. Not just a a, a proof text, but I'm talking about that's the flow of thought all the way through Romans chapter 9. And guess what? We have a whole sermon specifically on this text as well. Romans chapter 9 deals with that whole objection that if God chooses to elect some but not others, that must be unfair, some might say. But listen to how Paul deals with that objection, the objection of fairness when it comes to the basis of election. He deals with it, picking up in Romans chapter 9, verse 14. He says this. He says, What shall I say then? Is there any unrighteousness in God? Again, this is the charge of it being unjust for him electing. What does Paul say? He's speaking exactly to that very question, that very objection. He says, What then shall I say? Is there any unrighteousness in God? Is, Is that unjust that God would save some and not others? And then he goes on to say, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. What Paul reminds us of here is that it is God's divine prerogative, God's divine choice to demonstrate his mercy in any way that he chooses without any external reasons for him doing so. Because, you see, we have to understand that God never owes anyone mercy. He doesn't. God does not owe anyone mercy. And given that only some people will be saved, we have to understand that there are only two groups of people in the entire world. You have the saved and you have the unsaved. And by the way, both the saved and the unsaved... They are all part of a wider group known as sinners. Both the saved and the unsaved are sinners. We are fallen. We're in rebellion against God. Or at least we were. And that's an important point to note. When God did his electing for the foundation of the world, he did it in light of the fall of humanity. In other words... God only chose fallen sinners for salvation. If there was no fall, or if there was no sin, salvation wouldn't be needed, would it? There would be no need for election. It would be a waste of time for God to elect people for salvation if they didn't need to be saved in the first place. Again, God's decision when it came to election, it was done all in light of the fall. Now, when God considered the whole world, he knew that the whole world was fallen. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And he knew that if if he was only to give justice, if if God foreknew mankind 
And if he was only to give mankind justice, he knew that the the entire human race, every single person, would perish. If he knew that he was only to give justice, which, by the way, God was completely entitled to. God was under no compulsion whatsoever to save a single soul. He could look down the channel of time, see that all of mankind falls, all of mankind sins and is deserving of hell, and he gives justice, and there's not a single person who could justifiably point the finger at him and say, you are in the wrong, God, for giving justice. Not a a single person. But what God did is although he could have let everyone perish, he he could have just magnified his justice with everyone going to hell, what God did is that he sovereignly chose to elect some, well, he passed over others. And I use the word pass over, meaning that he didn't make anyone else sin. He didn't make a person go to hell. That was their, that was their doing. He chose to elect some out of that while passing over others. So what do we see in that picture? We see that one person, one group, gets mercy. Whereas what does the other group get? The other group gets justice. They get what they rightly deserve. And who gets injustice? Because remember, what is the charge against God if if, if there is unconditional election? That sounds unjust to me. God, one group gets to God, one group gets mercy. The other group gets justice. Who gets injustice? No one gets injustice. No one receives injustice by the hand of God. Just because a person may be a recipient of God's divine mercy, that is not an injustice. That's not a charge. You can charge God with injustice. Because even before they were born, they were known by God as a a fallen human being. On the other hand, mercy is not injustice. Mercy is simply non-justice and not getting what they deserve. And so if one person gets mercy and one another person gets justice, you cannot say the person who it's, it's unjust for a person to receive mercy. It's not unjust for a person to receive mercy. Non-justice is not injustice. With, one, with, with mercy, a person is not getting what they deserve. That's mercy. That's non-justice. But there's an important distinction that we must make. Non-justice is not the same as injustice. God is not unjust because he chooses to extend mercy or non-justice to some. Now, is there anything wrong with one person receiving justice while another person receiving mercy or another person receiving non-justice? Is there anything wrong with that? Is it wrong for one person to... Have mercy, another one justice. Some people will say, but that just doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair to me. But what they really mean is that, hey, that doesn't sound equal. And it's correct, it's not equal. But just because it's not equal, it doesn't mean that it's unfair. It would be like two men being tried before a judge both found guilty of breaking the law, both sentenced to the death penalty. Now, if a judge finds a way to offer a just alternative to enable him to extend mercy or non-justice to one, well, shouldn't he also extend the same to the other? Is, is, it, is it fair to pardon one guilty convict but not the other? Well, it's certainly not equal. After all, one person receives mercy, another person receives justice. But here's the question. Does a guilty convict, a guilty prisoner on death row who receives justice, do they have any right to complain? Can they complain at the judge saying that that is unfair, that's unjust? Not at all. What God reminds us of in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, is that he has the right to grant mercy on whomever he wishes to grant his mercy. If God chooses to grant mercy on one person, he is in no way obligated to grant that mercy to another person. If we ever think that God is obligated to be merciful, we are no longer thinking correctly about God's mercy, are we? Because 
by definition, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Therefore, mercy is never something which is obligated. Instead, mercy is something that God does voluntarily. There's no basis for us to say, you must be merciful in the way that I think you, that you should be merciful. Not at all. Mercy is something which God offers voluntarily. In other words, God is not bound to be merciful. God can still be just and good. Even if you have trouble trying to reconcile that in your own mind, God can still be good and just while extending mercy to one and not to another. Think about it this way. God could have chosen to elect no one so that everyone would have ended up in hell. And by the way, if that's what God decided to do, he would have been completely just in allowing for that to happen. No one could have accused God of injustice if everyone went to hell. And he chose no one because hell is what every single sinner deserves. But when God does demonstrate his mercy, it is by his own choice. And what's more, we can never, and we should never, say to a merciful God that he is not merciful enough. If we consider what the Bible says about unconditional election, I hope that none of us would ever have within our hearts something that would say, God, if you elected some but not all, then you're just not merciful enough. You haven't extended it to the degree that you probably should have. Who are we to say to our Creator, who happens to give us every single breath that we breathe, that he is somewhat lacking in mercy and that he should be more merciful. And if I can't get my head around God being more merciful to the degree that I think he should be more merciful, then I'm going to deny a specific doctrine of unconditional election. Who are we to say that? Again, what does scripture tell us? Romans chapter 9, verse 15. God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Well, in closing, as we consider the basis of our election, I do hope that although we've talked about some theological distinctions, unconditional election, conditional election, mercy, justice, I really do hope that after considering the subject of election, in brief, by the way, I should say, not exhaustively, we have teaching available to anyone who wants to go through it in more thorough fashion, more consistent, systematic fashion. But I sure hope that as we've considered the subject today, a bit of a snapshot, I sure hope that we're left with a fresh, fresh appreciation for the grace of God. Because think about it. If God did not choose to save us based upon our goodness or any merit in ourselves, here's the question. Why did he do it? Why in the world would he save you and I over other people if it wasn't based on anything that we have done ourselves? It's a very good question. It's a question that I don't have an answer for. It's a question that you don't have an answer for. All we know is that God chose according to his good sovereign purposes to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so the fact, if we have responded positively to the gospel, if we are growing in Christ-likeness, if we are having intimate fellowship as God being our Father, us being part of the family, the question, that question of why we were chosen, that should cause us, that mystery should cause us to live our lives to the glory of God each and every day. In the words of the songwriter, the song that we sometimes sing here on Sundays, he says this, you will save who you will save. We're the lost and helpless ones, the rebels and the renegades who spurred your holy love. You will save whom you will save. Mercy will be magnified. Everyone has gone astray and followed after lies. But you have loved us and opened our eyes. It's your grace from beginning to the end. It's your grace. We will never comprehend why you drew the ones who ran from you. What can we do?
but offer you praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your goodness, your grace, your mercy towards us. Thank you for the assurance that we can have as believers that we are not an afterthought to you, but that you have purposed that we would be your children, part of the family of God, through Christ, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You, you purposed that right from the very beginning of time. And although we don't fully understand the whole basis for, for, why you, for why you chose us over someone else, we have no understanding as to why you would have done that. We are no better than anyone else. All we can do is do what the songwriter said, and that's to offer you praise, glorify your name, to not be questioning you in such a way that would doubt your goodness, but instead for those questions that we all have from time to time, to, to humbly come to Scripture and let Scripture alone be our guide as we try to work this through in our thinking. God, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the hope of eternal life. Help us to live in light of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.